Welcome to Orphaned Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and joining me is the person who always comes back just like a $10 wallet. It's Lydia. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means, but <laughs> hi! <laughs> I mean, I get the reference. Yeah. I just don't know what it means. If you'd said I was a bad penny, I would totally get that. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what it means either, but I was struggling for puns on this I one. I suppose if you throw me out the window, I'll probably come back pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you would. Yeah, not in the same uh, manner that I came in originally. (laughs) Be a little more angry, probably. (laughs) Uh, Rightfully so. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Before we start talking about this movie today, I want to start by thanking everyone for tuning in. And for anyone who hasn't already, let you know that you can listen and subscribe to this show by visiting Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Spotify. And I encourage you to please rate and review us at any of those outlets. All those, even if it's just a leave a star rating or whatever, it helps others find the show. And we can grow our audience a little bit. You'd, of course, search for us in any podcast app of your choice. If we have a Facebook group that you can join, just go to facebook.com and search for Orphaned Entertainment. If you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. If you're wondering where you can watch some of the films that we've covered here on the show, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Orphaned Entertainment. All these links are on our webpage over at orphanedentertainment.com. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and and listen to a five-minute mystery. Oh, and speaking of five-minute mystery, I should mention we have yet to receive any scripts or any indication of receiving any scripts for a five-minute mystery. (laughs) I know. I I was a little disappointed. I I frankly, you know, I I don't know. Maybe people just aren't willing to uh, put in the effort for uh, no reward other than hearing us do the thing. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) I thought that would be reward enough. I thought, you know, also you would officially have had something you wrote, produced and played on a podcast. That's something, too. Absolutely. I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll have to talk. I meant to mention something beforehand. Maybe we'll have to try to sweeten the deal a little bit and see if we can. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start bribing you all, though. (laughs) Well, I think that maybe we might have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's go ahead and listen to a uh, already produced five-minute mystery <laughs> and a promo for another podcast. And when we get back, we're going to talk about 1940s Beyond Tomorrow. Another five-minute mystery. easily. Two turns right. Stop at 32. Three turns left. Stop at 16. 
Get away from that safe, Carter. Uh, I was just checking on some tickets that I left in the safe tonight, Mr. Thompson. Carter, you've been a cashier with this railroad for 15 years. How could you think of doing such a thing? Well, what are you talking about? You've been gambling rather heavily these past few weeks, Carter. You decided to let the railroad recoup your losses. Well, stay where you are. I'm calling the police. Oh, no, you're not. Put down that bar, you fool. All right, I'll put it down. Oh, How are you feeling now, Carter? A little better, Sergeant Evans. I can't see very well, of course. I, I broke my glasses in the struggle with the killer, and I'm not much good without them. I hate to pour these questions at you when you're not up to par, Carter, but it's important that you help us immediately. I'll do anything to help the police find the man who killed Mr. Thompson. Good. Now, you say that you and Thompson came down here to prepare some ticket sales records for the railroad. Yes. About what time was that? I should say about nine o'clock. About what time would you say the thief came in? About an hour later. We heard the door open, and when we turned around from the safe, he was standing near the door, pointing a gun at us. What happened then? Well, he demanded we give him the money from the safe. How did the struggle begin? Oh, Mr. Thompson walked straight at the thief and dared him to shoot. He was warned to stop or he'd be killed, but he continued to go right at him. The thief lost his nerve or something, for as Mr. Thompson made a sudden lunge at him, he didn't shoot, but instead hit him sharply over the head with the butt of his pistol. I ran forward immediately and grappled with the thief. And landed a blow in my jaw, and I fell to the floor. I got up as soon as I could, but I heard him starting his car outside the office. Did you run outside? Yes. The car was just pulling away, but I managed to get the first five numbers on the license plate. I wrote them down on this slip of paper. Oh, yeah, yeah. This will be a big help in the evidence to be presented in court. Well, I'll be happy to testify. That's a wise idea, Mr. Carter. The murderer always should at his own trial. What clue did Sergeant Evans uncover that led him to accuse the railroad cashier of murder? In just a moment, we'll know, but first... Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is the Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week, we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before, and we want to figure out what... Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. And now, back to our story. Are you accusing me of murdering Mr. Thompson? Yes, Carter. There was one slip in your story that gave you away. You admitted to me only a few minutes ago that you lost your glasses in the struggle with the thief and that you were helpless without them. Yet you managed to run outside the building and jot down several numbers of a license plate on a moving car in the middle of the night. No, Carter, there was no thief. But there was a murderer. Yourself. Beyond Tomorrow was released by RKO Radio Pictures. It was directed by A. Edward Sutherland. 
produced by Lee Garms, and a screenplay by Adele Comandini, based on her original story she co-wrote with Mildred Cram. The film stars Charles Winnegar as O'Brien, C. Aubrey Smith as Chadwick, Harry Carey as Melton, Richard Carlson as James, and Gene Parker is, well, Gene. And Marie Ospenskaya as Madame Tanya. So where to begin on this thing? Brief, with a, we have a, probably one of the biggest casts that I think we've ever had covering this, <laughs> one of our films. Uh, certainly the biggest cast that's actually everyone's involved. <laughs> <laughs> so some brief notes on a few folks. Uh, first, I want to talk about Lee Garms. He was a well-known cinematographer. He worked with some of the biggest directors in Hollywood, including Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock. He worked well in the se- into the 70s and was one of the first proponents of using the new technology of videotape rather than expensive film. He was even hired by Technicolor to photograph the short film Why in 1972, which was intended to test whether video was a viable technology for shooting feature films. He doesn't get any credit for it, but uh, apparently he filmed uh, quite a lot of Gone with the Wind. Oh, so, that's yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Now, some of the actors. Charles Winnegar's career began, as many of these actors do in these films, as v- in vaudeville. His most famous stage role was as Captain Andy Hawks in the original production of Showboat in 1927. He played the role in the 1932 stage revival and in the 1936 film version of the show. Winninger made a notable television appearance in 1954 in an I Love Lucy episode as Barney Kurtz, the former vaudevillian partner of William Frawley's Fred Mertz, in an episode called Mertz and Kurtz. (laughs) C. Aubrey Smith actually started his career as a cricket player. He played for Cambridge University and occasionally for Sussex. He began acting on the London stage in 1895, and his first major role was in The Prisoner of Zenda the following year. Ah, that's where he's from, Colonel Zapp. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I kept recognizing him going, where do I know him from? Of course, it's the one with David Niven. (laughs) Okay, what the prisoner of the, the Zenda? prisoner of Zenda? He movie. would he would actually. I was just going to say he he started out on stage playing in Prisoner of Zenda, playing the really? dual lead roles of King and Lookalike. Yeah, oh, and forty one forty one years later, he appeared in the film version, but this time as the wise old advisor. Now he appeared in the early nineteen twenties British films, and he would obviously make his way to Hollywood, where he had a successful career as a character actor, playing either officer or gentleman type roles. You can definitely see where he could find a niche in that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now Richard Carlson began his career on stage as well. His first film role was in the nineteen thirty eight David O. Selznick comedy The Young in Heart. He was often cast as the romantic lead and worked heavily into the early 40s until the war when he enlisted and served in the U.S. Navy. Upon returning to work, the roles were a little fewer and further between, so he turned to writing to make ends meet. It wasn't into the 1950s that he found a new success as an actor. Carlson played the lead in The Magnetic Monster, which led to him finding a niche in the newly re-emergent genres of science fiction and horror. 
He followed it with leads in The Maze, It Came From Outer Space, and the most famous of all, 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. And I honestly didn't even realize it was the same Richard Carlson until I started doing a little <laughs> bit of research. Not used to that uh, that southern draw that he uses in this film. Mm-hmm. He's he. It, it's remarkable. I didn't realize there's so many char- so many actors in this that are in some of my favorite movies, and I didn't even realize. <laughs> and he's he's in one with Bob Hope called The Ghostbreakers with Paulette Goddard. Yeah, yeah, great so, movie. He was also in uh, Hold That Ghost with Abbott and Costello. I only know that because it just came up on another podcast just recently <laughs> that I was listening to. Now, Jean Parker landed her first screen test while still in high school. In 1932, she posed as a flower girl and living poster in a float in the Tournament of Roses Parade, where she was seen by Ida Coverman, who was secretary to MGM's Louis B. Mayer. The following day, the studio called her on the phone and invited her in for a screen test. She would appear in 70 movies from 1932 through 1966. Through her career, she would act opposites uh, such well-known actors as Catherine Hepburn, uh, Robert Donat, Edward G. Robinson, Randolph Scott, and even Laurel and Hardy. little funny bit of trivia. While appearing at a nightclub in Sydney, Australia in 1951, Parker made international headlines when she was escorted off Bondi Beach by a swimsuit inspector who measured her bikini and determined it was too skimpy. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) All the good Uh, old days. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The very fact that you could have too skimpy of a bikini and that you would have a swimsuit inspector at the beach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) The the 50s, ladies and gentlemen. Uh. I am not mentioning much about Harry Carey here because I think we talked to him to some length back when he was in Angel and the Bad Man. Mm -hmm. So that was back in August. So I suggest... And I recommend that you go back and listen to that episode if you'd like to learn a little bit more about him. So last but not least, I will mention Maria Ospenskaya. She was an actress and acting teacher. She was born in Tula, part of the then Russian Empire, and studied singing in Warsaw, Poland, and acting in Moscow. She was a founding member of the first studio, a theater studio, the world-famous Moscow Art Theater. The Moscow Art Theater traveled widely throughout Europe, and when it arrived in New York City in 1922, Ospenskaya decided to stay. She performed regularly on Broadway over the next decade. She also taught acting at the American Laboratory Theater, the American American Laboratory Theater, and in 1929, together with Richard, it's another Russian name, Boslowski. How about Boslowski? Boslowski, sure. Boslowski, her colleague from the Moscow Art Theater, she founded the School of Dramatic Art in New York City. She stayed away from Hollywood until her school's financial problems forced her to look for other ways to make a little money. She found work in Hollywood, playing European characters of various national origins. Her first Hollywood role was in Dodsworth in 1936, which brought her a nomination for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Her appearance in that film was one of the briefest ever to garner a nomination. She received a second Oscar nomination for her role in Love Affair in 1939. Mm -hmm. She may be best recognized by many as Moleva, or Moleva, in the old gypsy fortune teller in the Universal Pictures horror film The Wolfman and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. 
So that's all I have the trivia. There is a, everyone in this film has got they were prolific character actors and made lots of appearances in film and television. And this is only the briefest mm-hmm. you know, bit, bit of notes on every one of them. Uh, if you're at all curious, definitely look up. There's a lot to read about everyone in this film. So all that being said, you ready to get into the plot of Beyond Tomorrow? I'm ready. Right, Beyond Tomorrow from 1940. You might actually find this on a... It was re-released uh, sometime later as Beyond Christmas. So there's a couple of different titles for the film. So just fair And that's actually a color version. Yeah. Oh, uh, was it? So was that the colorized? Yeah, the 2004 release of it, it was colorized and retitled Beyond Christmas, probably for copyright purposes. Yeah, exactly. They kind of made it their own thing. So we will be covering the black and white version original, I guess you would say. (laughs) Well, the film opens with a quote from Ben Franklin. It says, I believe that the soul of a man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. And it is Christmas Eve in New York City. In the home of three wealthy men, two of the men are busy with calculations and formulas of a new steel. Chadwick and Melton are keeping their staff of typists and note-takers busy and late into the evening. The third man, O'Brien, comes home and is laden with gifts and breaks up all this business by passing out presents to the staff and his two friends and partners. O'Brien shows off a cigarette dispenser music box he bought for himself, I'm assuming, (laughs) and Melton and Chadwick open their gifts. Chadwick is excited, but Melton is a bit of a Scrooge. (laughs) Chadwick receives a set of new smoking pipes, and Melton unwraps his present to find a cane. Well, I suppose this means I'm getting decrepit. No, I tried to find a black snake whip for you, but I had to take that instead. When you're not shaking that over our heads to make us work, you can hobble around on it and enjoy your sciatica. Well, I suppose this means I'm decrepit, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get you a snake whip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I liked O'Brien's comment about that. Well, when you're not waving this all over our heads to get us back to work, (laughs) you can use it to help your sciatica. (laughs) (laughs) Now reminded that they have very important guests coming, the three set to freshening up. We meet Joseph the butler and the head maid, Madam Tanya, as they set up the dining room. Joseph repeatedly calls Tanya, Your Excellency. Tanya presents Joseph with a gift box. In the box is a large medal. This medal is apparently the Order of Stanislav. Now, I actually looked this up. I don't know if you, you did at all. I, there's a Order of Saint Stanislav that was a real thing, or is a real thing. And this was a Polish order of knighthood that was incorporated into the honor system of the Russian Empire. It was abolished in 1917 after the Russian Revolution and the fall of the Romanovs. 
Ah, that makes so much it sense. It does. Because he calls her countess. Yes. And it would have made sense if she had been involved with the Romanovs. Right. That is interesting. The order of Stanislav for me. You were a great friend to follow me to America, Joseph. It was no longer my rush without Hugo. Excellency. Joseph, when I had jewels and lands and palaces, I was often weary and discontent. When everything was taken away except my life, I learned that the way to be really happy is to serve others, to be needed. So don't be sorry for me or for what was lost. Come. The guests will be here. Yeah, obviously, he the way he treats her is of, like, royalty and everything. I thought it was interesting. I did look up. There was a Grand Duchess Tatiana of Russia. Oh, interesting. Uh, who was indeed, uh, I think she was um, the second daughter of, of, of Tsar Nicholas II. Okay. And, yeah, uh, she was supposedly murdered uh, during the Russian Revolution. But there was, of course, rumors that her and her sisters escaped. So I kind of, mm-hmm. in in my head, <laughs> I've decided that Tanya is the escaped <laughs> Grand Duchess. <laughs> I find that such an interesting character trait to throw in, to, to give anyone, frankly. The, mm-hmm. the whole, I was royalty in Russia and now I'm a maid in the United States. Or head of household. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to call her a maid. She's the head of household. I, yeah, she doesn't. Yeah, she's not quite a maid because obviously the butler answers right. to her, and the butler would have. And been we the head and of we household. see a maid uh, elsewhere, so I, I'm going to say she's just sort of like the head, yeah, the, like the housekeeper. Or I couldn't tell. Well, I suppose we'll get into bits of it later, but I, I, I suppose at one point, my initial watch of this, I thought she owned the house, and uh, the the three gentlemen that lived there, Chadwick, Melton, and O'Brien, were. Not tenants exactly, but sort of friends that she cared mm. for. Because she even mentions, she says, you know, when I had money and wealth, I I was unhappy. And then now that I've lost everything, I know the way to be really happy is to serve mm-hmm. others and to be needed. So I sort of took that as her saying, I've opened my home to these mm. people, mm. even though it's not as grand as it once yep. was. But. That'd be interesting to clarify. Yeah, well, I think we find out later. You definitely get the impression that she's in the employ, but she is mm-hmm. certainly well-respected and well-liked by everybody. So even though she's in the employ of the men, she's treated almost as an equal. As an equal, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, maybe not, certainly not, she has nothing to do with their, um, their steel business, but as mm-hmm. far as the house goes, I don't imagine any decisions are made without her input. <laughs> Right. In fact, I'm I'm assuming she makes all the, the decisions. Yeah. <laughs> and they just go, whatever you say, Madam Tanya. One <laughs> <laughs> well, in the other room, Chadwick is fixing himself a drink and notices some old photos of himself and his family while he was in the military station in India, reminiscing how nice it was to have family and children around. Melton continues to disparage the load of noisy nonsense. O'Brien and Madame Tanya come in, and Chadwick tries to give her a holiday greeting in Russian, but she chides him that that particular greeting is for Easter. (laughs) 
The three men present Madame Tanya with a large present. She opens it to find a long fur coat. She is stunned at the gift, but tells them it will keep her no warmer than the kindness they have shown her all these years. The four share a toast before Tanya heads off to finish up everything for dinner. And they, the three men gleefully watch as uh, she goes in the other room and admires herself in the mirror <laughs> in her new coat. It's a very cute scene. It's so sweet. And I, I think it's awesome that you really get the feeling that the whole she was once royalty or I think it really kind of builds up to this gift. They're kind of giving her a little bit of mm-hmm. something. She lost. Yeah, exactly. When she was younger. Mm-hmm. It is just. Definitely. Like I said, it's just such an interesting character trait for mm-hmm. someone in this position. I was just like, you didn't need to do that, but it just, it helps. I don't know what mm-hmm. it is. It just makes it so much better. <laughs> <laughs> A telegram arrives, and the men learn that their special guests won't be coming, claiming an illness in the family. Melton has other thoughts on their cancellation. Illness in the family. You shouldn't have let them know I'd be here. Don't be ridiculous, George. You had nothing to do with it, didn't I? Oh, I can hear them. George Vale Melton. Isn't he the fellow who's mixed up in the Shreve case? Acquitted? Lack of evidence? Oh, for pity's sake, George, don't be so sensitive. That's all past and forgotten. Sure it is, and don't flatter yourself that anybody remembers. To tell you the truth, I'm relieved that the Van Rippers are not coming. He's telling the same jokes he told 20 years ago, and she dyes her hair. I think it's a shrimp pink now. I don't know why I asked them to come at all at all. The trouble with us is we're in a rut. Too much work and no play. We don't take time to see our old friends. Yes, not so many of our old friends left, Michael. Well, then we ought to make new ones. What we ought to do is... What we ought to do is... Oh, come on, have a drink. O'Brien comes up with an idea. They'll each take one of their business cards, put them in a gift wallet, along with $10, and they will toss the three wallets out into the busy sidewalk to see if any of them bring back someone to have dinner with them. They do so with an additional side bet after Melton grumbles that none of them will be returned. Well, finders keepers. <laughs> Any money in it? Ten dollar bill. George Vale Melton. Engraved by uh, Tiffany. He'll never miss the money. Here you are, Robin. Merry Christmas. Thank you, madam. You have a heart of gold with other people's money. <laughs> so the three wait. Chedwick and Melton argue over whether or not the British Empire is a force for good or not while doing so. Uh, getting rather heated in the discussion, I might add. And just as the clock strikes 7 p.m., the time that was to end their wait and the bet, the door buzzes. O'Brien dashes to the door and opens it to find a young man in a cowboy hat. Well, good evening to you. Good evening, sir. Somebody here lose a wallet? Yes, yes, come in, come in. Which one did you... I mean, my name is O'Brien. That's the name, all right. There's $10 in it. $10 it is. Here you are, sir. Well, Merry Christmas. Wait, wait. Stay and have a bit of cheer with us. Well, I... Oh, come along, come along. Uh, What is your name, lad? Uh, James Houston, sir. Houston. This is mighty nice of you. Well, it's nice of you. Sir. I'm eager to, to bring back my wallet. Come along, come along. 
Mr. Melton, Mr. Chadwick, this is Mr. Houston. Good evening. Proud to know you, sir. Mr. Houston brought back my wallet. And now he's going to have a drink with us. Mr. Houston is invited in for a drink and to warm himself by the fire. Melton notices James' boots as he adds a log to the fire. They're worn and tattered. He asks him where he's from. James proudly declares himself a Texan, and Melton mentions that he's from Oklahoma, and the two neighbors share a hearty handshake. James sits down, and we learn that he came up with a rodeo, or rodeo, (laughs) to Madison Square Gardens. He figured he'd stick around a while to see what New York was like, and apparently he stayed too long, and he's trying to work up enough money to get himself home. So O'Brien invites him to stay for dinner, since he's got nowhere else to be. James doesn't want to impose, but Chadwick talks him into staying. And to give James just a little more incentive to stay, he notices a beautiful young woman has come in with Madame Tanya. This woman has found Chadwick's wallet. Jean Lawrence joins the group, and James quickly introduces himself to Jean, and they all sit down to chat. Jean is also away from family, and O'Brien invites her to dinner as well. She tries to decline, but then Joseph announces that dinner is ready, so O'Brien won't take no for an answer, and they all go to the dining room, as O'Brien begins to tell the couple about the trio's bet. So I do like the fact that he just... (laughs) These... They they do come clean as to uh, how they got there. After dinner, a troupe of musicians play outside as the men, James and Jean, watch from the window. James begins singing. O'Brien calls the band up to the apartment for more music. Sometime later, the band is playing and James is singing along. He's singing I Dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair. The whole time, his eyes locked with jeans. Everyone in the house is gathered and is enjoying the impromptu concert. Even Melton is smiling until Chadwick catches him <laughs> and he, he puts his scowl back. There's a suggestion that they all sing something. Jingle Bells is the song of choice, and O'Brien calls everyone into the room, including Madame Tanya, Joseph, Alfonso the chef, and Catherine the maid. And they all begin singing, and we get to see them all singing in all their languages. (laughs) So we get Jingle Bells in English, Russian, German, and Italian. Milton puts himself kind of away from the the raucous crowd and stares at the window, so no one can see him singing along as well. I love how they're building up his character as being this, you know, outspoken humbug, but then secretly he really wants to be a part of it, and he really wants to Mm -hmm. sing along. Yeah, it's all a little bit about his appearance. He's kind of given himself this appearance, this outer shell, this, oh, I'm just a big tough guy, when (laughs) in fact, you know, he's not. (laughs) And I think it's great that we kind of find more and more about these three men, the other guys... They know he's not, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he knows that they know he's not, but... (laughs) He's going to keep pretending. (laughs) Exactly. The party finally breaks up, and Gene and James say their goodbyes. James goes to leave, but Madame Tanya says he's forgetting his overcoat. Joseph slips a coat on James, and James protests. He didn't have an overcoat. Madame Tanya insists that he take his overcoat. (laughs) 
Melton heads off to bed. After he leaves, O'Brien remarks to Chadwick about him. <laughs> Tough guy, he says with a wink. He gave the lad his overcoat. <laughs> so yes, so, so there you go. <laughs> James walks Jean back to her home, which is also her work, the Wayne Foundation Children's Clinic. So apparently she works for Batman. <laughs> Across the street, James spots a horse. Jean introduces the horse as Gallagher. I've never seen a grown man as excited about a horse as he gets. <laughs> now, girls, seen lots of girls that excited about horses. <laughs> well, he's the he's the cowboy, so I guess it, it fits. And he says he's been away from home a long time. It's true, exactly. Jean introduces the horse as Gallagher, and she surprises James by having some sugar cubes in her pocket for him. Gallagher's owner, a police officer, walks up. James compliments him on the horse's appearance. He said it has been three months since he's, since he's been on a horse, and he practically lived on him b- before that. He sh- would sure like to give him a ride. <laughs> the officer says that the sergeant would bust him for sure if he allowed that. But in the end, the officer relents, and Gene stands guard while James takes a ride to the park. <laughs> As luck would have it, though, the sergeant does come by. Jean tries her best to delay and distract him. Good evening, Sergeant, uh, would you mind awfully if I asked you a few questions? All right. What is it? Uh, have you ever been in Texas? I have never been south of the battery. Oh, that's too bad. You ought to travel. You know, it's really quite broadening. Yes, well, I'm broad enough now. <laughs> Sergeant, um, do you like children? Well, I better had. I've got six of my own. Oh, you don't say. You know, I've got 20. Yep. What? <laughs> that isn't the clinic. I work there. Oh, my. The sergeant finally makes his way past Jean, just as the officer rides up once again mounted on the horse. Jean beats a hasty retreat and rejoins James. The sergeant walks up to the couple and asks James if he enjoyed the ride. James excitedly says he did before catching himself. The sergeant turns to the mounted officer sternly, then smiles and wishes him a Merry Christmas. Well, see, it's a happy film. See, it's Christmas time. <laughs> it's a happy film. <laughs> James says goodnight to Jean, uh, almost sharing a kiss several times. It's actually a very cute uh, scene between these two. <laughs> well, goodnight. Yeah. And, oh, your coat. Oh, well, well goodnight. goodnight. And, oh, wait, this, these are your gloves. Oh, well, well goodnight. goodnight. <laughs> it really is cute. It is Christmas Day at the Children's Clinic. The three gentlemen and Madam Tanya and James visit, and the group have a party with the kids. After that, we get a set of montages of dates going by, James and Jean getting together with the three businessmen for dinners, shows, New Year's Eve parties, birthdays, and even bowling. When they finally stop on the bowling scene, again, it's the cast of this film, the actors, and how they act with each other, and how they play their characters, I I just absolutely love, mm-hmm. and it's they're all just so cute. Madame Tanya is probably maybe my favorite <laughs> character. She is adorable. <laughs> she oh, I knocked down all the bottles. <laughs> yeah, don't I have to pick them up? <laughs> yeah. 
It is so awesome. And I love the, uh, Gene, it's your turn. But Gene and James are like locked in each other's <laughs> eyes talking and you're like, mm, yeah, never mind. <laughs> it is. It's just, this film is honestly really one great scene after another for me. Sometime later, the men get a telegram that says that the new alloy that they've been working on is going into testing, and the three should fly to Pittsburgh. They head to the airport, and James, Jean, and Madame Tanya see them off. Tanya feels very uneasy about them flying and begs them to take the train. They, bl- they brush off her concerns and board the plane. As it takes off, Tanya again wishes they had taken the train. James and Jean continue to get to know each other. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Dogs? Cats? Sugar and cream? Brussels sprouts? Oh, oh, that's bad. But it's the only one you've missed so far. Everything else we like alike. <laughs> you know, I had a hunch there was something to keep me here in New York. And you're it. Do you have somebody back in Texas? Oh, sure. Do you like her? Oh, where is it? Oh, uh, tell me more about her. What's she like? Well, she's uh, pretty. And uh, about your coloring. Brown eyes. I suppose she's crazy about you, too. Oh, yeah. Hey, every night when I come home, she, she runs clear to the gate to meet me. What's she going to say about me? Oh, I don't know. You probably say, um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, horses. <laughs> yeah, how many fellas you got on the string? Oh, not many. Who? Just Mr. Chadwick, Mr. Belton, Mr. O'Brien, and you. <laughs> as soon as I get a decent job, we can get married. Jimmy, you just proposed to me. What? I did. Yeah, I like them going through and doing the little, um, so cats? Oh, yeah. Dogs? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Brussels sprouts? Mm, oh, well. <laughs> two out of three ain't bad. Deal breaker. <laughs> As the couple share a big kiss, a newspaper boy shows up and tries to sell James a paper. The whole time, there's like, there's just, you you hear the uh, newsboys, you know, extra, extra, you know, in the background. Uh, James declines the paper, and excitedly, <laughs> him and Jean rush off to tell somebody. I love the kid like tries to interrupt this couple that's just making out on the street. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the paper, Mister. Uh, not right not now. Not now. Not now. <laughs> Unfortunately, what the two miss is the paper's headline that says that there's a plane lost in a mountain storm. Dun dun dun. At the house, a man is breaking the news to Madame Tanya and Joseph. The men have all perished in the crash. In the living room, the ghostly forms of the men appear. O'Brien gets a cigarette from his music box, and Chadwick taps out his pipe on the fireplace screen. And this is actually really a remarkable special effect. Even the first yeah. time watching it, I was like, oh, wow. The, what was interesting to me is the clarity of them. 
It's mm-hmm. you can see them really well, but you can see through them really well. Right. Which for 1940 is quite I a special to, effect. I'm, really need to try to research how they did effects like this <laughs> in the night now I understand I know how to do it digitally yes but you had to do this with film so you had to have filmed you know everything twice yeah. I would think that's the only and thing then expose it or underexpose a, or overexpose a film or something mm-hmm. to allow it to be transparent mm-hmm. so you could show the other picture through it yeah. and it does it works so well and it's it's, it's done really well in this from the other room, Madame Tanya appears to hear what's going on in the living room, even though Joseph does not. Keep the tobacco jar filled, Joseph. And bring the hot toddies as you usually do. The three men are confused for a moment, but then they begin, they begin to remember what happened. They remember the storm and the crash. Everything went black for a moment, and then they were home. It's actually a very somber, very well done. It's it's a very kind of sad moment. Mm-hmm. Madame Tanya really carries that moment, and you really feel for yeah. you feel for what's going on. It's... The men quickly come to terms with what has happened. A little curious as to what comes next, but as they're all all their physical ailments are gone and they have each other, they accept the event willingly. When they realize that Chadwick is like, where's my glasses? The glasses are gone. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't seem oh, to need them. Need them. And <laughs> O'Brien's like, well, my feet don't hurt. And they're like, how's your, Melton, how's your back? And he gets up and at, at one point, he like, someone makes this comment about the... Brian points mentions that to Melton, I can see right through you. And Melton's reply, you always could. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the door buzzes and James and Jean come in. James starts to ask Joseph if he sees any reason why he can't have three best men. James notices the dour look on Joseph's face, even more dour than usual. Joseph is not an expression, a person with an expression (laughs) issue. Joseph hands James the paper, and the two learn the horrible truth. Tanya tries to comfort Jean and tells her that they loved her and James very much. Seems faint. 
Tanya again senses O'Brien's presence and actually hears him calling to her. He directs her to his desk drawer. In the desk drawer is an envelope for James and Jean, a couple of saving bonds, and a letter. What's going on? Left them a couple of bonds. Enough to get married on. Shouldn't have done it. Money's bad for kids. <laughs> Don't forget, you still owe us a dinner from the last time you were wrong. <laughs> Dear Jimmy and Jean, accept this gift for the happy day. I can see in your eyes it's not far off. You have a blessing. Just like him to do this for a couple of strangers. You are not strangers. You filled a very lonely place in his heart. Won't you need these? Not you may think. I'm well provided for. Is there anything I can do? Perhaps, Jimmy, you would come and live here for a while. So Joseph and I would have someone to look after. Outside, as James and Jean leave, they meet a reporter. I could swear I see them up there. So could I. I beg your pardon, are you related to the men who lived here? They were our friends. Could you give me some idea what they were like? The report is that they were eccentric old hermits. That's not true. I should say not. They were swell. Well, I'm on the Daily Press. My paper wants human interest. Won't you come along and talk it over? A newspaper headline tells of the couple getting the bond and James' gifted voice. I'm not sure. There's there's some comment on the paper about uh, James' winning legacy or something mm-hmm. like that. It, it, it The way it's worded is very odd. I'm guessing what it just means is... These three men, you know, uh, willed them these bonds, and uh, somehow it came up that James has a good voice. Yeah, I, that's <laughs> I what know. it seemed like. <laughs> it's, it's a little odd. A radio news station uh, takes an interest as well and invites them to appear on a show. Gene thinks it's a great idea. This might give James a chance to sing. Even Madame Tanya thinks this may be a great opportunity. The three men continue to watch from their ghostly sidelines. You'll be famous. We'll be rich. You'll be able to buy that big ranch with a million horses. Madame Tanya can come stay with us. Yeah, we can all live happily ever after. I still say he'd be better off back in Texas on the ranch where he belongs. Well, I agree with Michael. The boy's got talent. Why shouldn't he do something with his voice? Sure, and why not? What's wrong with him being a singer? The world needs music just as much as it does buildings and bridges. All right, have it your way. And I'm not in favor of it. James goes to the station and literally runs into radio show star performer Arlene Terry. Reminder that this is the woman who found Melton's wallet. Miss Terry recognizes James from the paper. 
They chat, and she gives him her card. If they let him sing, she should give her a call so she can listen. After the meeting with the radio producer, James rushes out of the office and quickly calls Gene. He is going to sing, and he's going to do it that night. Gene goes off to tell all her nurse friends, and James calls his mom to tell her to tune in. Again, he does a great job with the phone call. Mom, I don't need him. She's obviously trying to ship him his long underwear mm-hmm. or something. They don't, it's not that cold, Mom. They don't use them in New York. He does finally call Miss Terry to let her know. Also, a little great bit of uh, directing here is the secretary, although she has very little to say. She does a lot with her, her eyes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you get a pretty good impression of the kind of person Miss Terry is yes. just by watching the secretary. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. her, her face says, oh, here we go again. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Oh, she's got her sight set on another one. Yep. That night, we see Miss Terry uh, listening to a piano tune played by her producer. Pretty good. It's a hit. We can go into a fast rehearsal just as soon as Tony Marshall returns from Florida. Oh, poor old Tony. He'll be making his entrances in a wheelchair pretty soon. Don't worry, he's had his face lifted. Besides, he still brings them in. Miss Terry suddenly remembers the radio show and tunes in to James singing. James, of course, sounds amazing. And we get a clip of everybody listening to him sing. Miss Terry, the producer, uh, everyone at the house, Miss Tanya, Joseph, Gene, of course. (laughs) We don't get to meet his mom, unfortunately. As soon as he finishes, Miss Terry calls the station to talk to James. She puts him on the line with her producer, and they arrange to meet. The producer starts making plans, and so does Miss Terry. (laughs) Raised eyebrows. (laughs) James rushes home to tell Jean, then rushes up to Miss Terry's apartment to meet her and her producer. They immediately start talking about James replacing their aging leading man. The meeting goes many hours and many drinks into the night. I like the the moment when James says, I gotta go, I, you know, I'm gonna meet these people. And Jean says, I'll be waiting. And then you kind of get the idea that she keeps waiting. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, it's she keeps waiting for the phone call. A little she makes waiting for something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of which, from here, James's story becomes fairly typical. Uh, too much, too fast, and him having to make tough decisions or others making them for him. Oh, well, why not? Who wouldn't celebrate? He's getting his chance. Yeah. Chance to get mixed up with a lot of cheap people. He'll turn his head and make a fool of him. He'll drink too much and he'll laugh too much. He'll lose his way. Well, there's two sides to it, George. The way I see it, he'll give people a lot of pleasure. Ah, he's a good lad. And he's in love with the fine girl. She'll keep him steady. To be born innocent is natural. But to die pure of heart, that's a gift. Well, stick to your faith, Michael. You may need it before you're through. Ah, you're always looking at the black side of things. Now, the best parts of the next 20 minutes is still with our ghostly friends and Gene. But to find out what that is, you're going to have to watch for yourselves. 
this is actually the point of the film where I kind of, um, I don't want to say it's disappointing that it be, kind of becomes a little bit more pedestrian of a story because it is just really focused about James. It becomes this, he's getting famous. Miss Terry has these plans for him. He starts, you know, kind of, you don't know where he stands with Gene anymore. I don't want to give too many spoilers away. I think it's pretty obvious, actually, by this point. Like you said, it's foreshadowing by just that one mm-hmm. night. It becomes just kind of like, oh, it's just another one of those films, and then they kind of sprinkle in the the bits with the uh, with the deceased men. But I'll be honest, and I'm not going to bury the lead here. I loved this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I You're really kidding. did. No, I really did. Says the guy who posted on Facebook uh, three or four or five or six days ago, if you haven't watched it, watch it right now. <laughs> it was terrible. I wasn't even 15 minutes into this film before I texted you, and I was like, we picked a good yeah. one. <laughs> I got that text and was like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. I did. I absolutely loved this film. I I loved everybody in it. Um, I think it's just an amazing cast. It's a fun story. I think it's rather, other than like what I just said, I I feel like a lot, I'm being a little um, two faced here, saying that you know some of the story is kind of pedestrian and, and typical of, or whatever of the time. But I think it just because you still have that extra little bit with these men, it it just makes it just. Kind of unique, mm-hmm. at least for me. I have, don't know if I've seen any other film like this. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a a Christmas Carol. There's a little bit of Christmas Carol <laughs> yes, to it. Lo- yeah, there's a very strong whiff of Christmas Carol in it. <laughs> yes, uh, there is name probably a dozen films about someone's star suddenly shooting up, and you know everyone in his past getting kind of getting left behind, mm-hmm. and he has to find out you know what's really important to him. That's been done a million times. I get it, but uh, mixed into this film with this cast, it's just I think it's phenomenal. Mm. Well, it is an interesting that kind of as you were talking about it, that sparked the thought to me, uh, you know, Shakespeare says, what is it? Every exit, uh, off stage is an entrance onto, you know, I can't quote it. Somebody's yelling it into the, uh, speaker right now saying that's right. not the quote. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it reminded, as you were talking about it, it made me think of the movie Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is almost entirely all about the, two friends of Hamlet, what happens when they leave Hamlet's presence, and that's what all the Mm. scenes are. And it actually made me think, this is a bit similar to that, because you have, rather than having people walking off the scene, it's like, well, what happens after they've passed on? And they're still there, and they've still got their hands in, and they're still influencing things. So here's the very typical story, but what if you were the the person that is passed on watching it rather than you know just a spectator so mm-hmm. i'm not explaining it very well but that is the twist somebody went well what what if you know what if you knew people but you died but you could still watch them and that's mm-hmm. a lot of that's basically the premise of this movie is this the story of the young people is nothing hugely exceptional it's nothing you haven't seen before but right. the story of the people that have passed on watching them and influencing their actions or influencing those around them that is the story that's the real story and to me i think that's 
what carries the story past this point. Because typically, you're right, this movie would end with him, with James becoming a star and, you know, singing really well and making a lot of money, and that would be the end of the story. But what keeps it going is these characters that have already died, but you get to see how it how James's success affects them, which mm-hmm. is really funny because, of course, you know, physically, it, physiologically, it doesn't at all, but it definitely does emotionally. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of have to be like ghostly armchair quarterbacks yeah. <laughs> for much of the film. And it, it, it is kind of interesting. They disappear for the longest amount of time. You you get to the point where you almost forget that they were there. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there's a scene with them back and you're like, oh, right, they're still here. <laughs> um, but you get to see... I know, you don't want to give too much away. <laughs> yeah, it, it is difficult. Uh, but yeah, you definitely get the impression from the way they're talking that they've been watching everything like yes. you have. Yes. And so they've been seeing the events and so they have their thoughts, and they know, like, oh, and they're they're torn. I mean, uh, Melton, or of course, like I was saying, is the is the naysayer. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 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 the cynic. You know, nothing good can come of this. But uh, you find out ag- why it becomes. I mean, they they say this is why he was that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so it's interesting because you start off thinking, oh, here here are these three different characters, but then you get to see a little bit of their past, and you get to and understand why they're trying to influence these young people this way. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the the fact that there was three of them. So you had Melton, who was nothing good can come of this. You had O'Brien, who was oh, what could it hurt? This is awesome. Roses this is bunnies. a big chance. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And and Chadwick was is kind of the one in the middle. Mm-hmm. He's the one like, oh well, why not? And then other times he's kind of like, well, you know, he has a point. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's like kind of like the balance between the two. It, it makes it very interesting. And it, I just, um, yeah, uh, second favorite character is probably O'Brien. I I love Madame Tanya. O'Brien is definitely he's he is the big kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is definitely. Oh, uh, Mr. Cratchit of this Christmas story, perhaps. <laughs> yes. You know, he's got Christmas in his heart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you could almost find parallels with all the characters mm. here um, with someone like in A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But, of course, these men actually get to play sort of the uh, the Christmas ghosts themselves. They're, they're, the characters are, are sort of fluid, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess, who they get to portray. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. I just, I love this film. I just, I, I watched this thing with glee. I, I giggled, you know, uh, at, at some of the stuff that was going on. Um, I, I just, I just really enjoyed it. What did you think? I mean, did you like it as much as I did? Did you, would I, what's your opinion? I, don't, yeah, I, I, I know you can't, <laughs> you cannot dislike this movie. I well, know that. And too, I don't want to give too much away. Um, I, uh, so let me think how to explain this. Um, I enjoyed this movie. I am not quite as enthusiastic about it as you are, mostly because I am an O'Brien. I want everything to be roses and bunnies. So mm-hmm. as soon as as soon as James takes off and starts getting involved with uh, with Arlene, Terry. yeah, with Miss yeah. Terry, then I'm I'm going. Oh, really. Really, <laughs> um, you know. But then, of course, me being the the wise middle aged lady, that I am, 
<laughs> Being the, the wise individual that I am, I'm going, well, James and Jean did meet awful quickly and under very, you know, fortuitous circumstances. So maybe they're not the best fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I really did love about it was seeing how O'Brien kind of sticks to his his belief through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I, I think he, to me, I, I know you mentioned that, you know, the, the focus of the story kind of switches over to James at this point, but I feel like O'Brien's, it, it, that O'Brien is the one that continues to drive the story and that he's the mm. one that I stuck it out for. Like, I want to, I want to know, you know, there, I think we have sort of avoided mentioning some of the outcome of their stories but i you know especially with him i I wanted to see what well what you know what happens with him continuing to influence these people so Mm -hmm. um i i found it very entertaining um but you know as you said since it's kind of leads off into this typical holly well not hollywood success but new york success story um it's 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 i had a very mixed reaction to it so it it wasn't one and partly you you drastic parked me you said oh you gotta see this it's so good and so i watched it being like (laughs) i hyped it oh no you totally drastic parked me um you know i watch it going oh it's gonna be so good and then i and i got to the end of it and i was like well i i liked it but I okay. was built up a little bit in my mind. I know, of course, you didn't do it on purpose. So, um, so it's it's interesting. I don't know what I would have thought if I hadn't already had an expectation. I think I would have really liked it, but I do think it's a movie that leaves you at the end where you want just a little more closure. Mm. So for me, I do like things all wrapped up in a nice, tidy bow. I want either everybody dead or everybody happy. <laughs> you know, yeah, I want the I, entire battle, battlefield littered with the corpses of right. every person that was out there. Or I want somebody to magically stop the war and everybody's happy. So <laughs> so to leave things a little bit tenuous, even though you know what's going to happen at the end, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I would have liked to have seen you know maybe one more scene maybe one wrapping but i think they did it well i think they ended it where the real story ended not where yes. not where the sort of um they had a a, a vehicle to move the story forward mm-hmm. and the real story of it i think is where it ends and that's i think it's appropriate so uh, you're gonna hear things like appropriate and enjoyed which is not as enthusiastic (laughs) as i typically am that's not to say that i didn't i didn't like it i did enjoy it there are some really it's funny i i don't think you can say there are some really remarkable performances or it's difficult to say that because they're so natural you don't see them as performances and i yeah madam tanya's the the quintessential example in this because at no point is she being and i don't get me wrong i love the wolfman but at no point is she being the creepy gypsy lady she's just being this sweet old lady that just loves her friends and wants them to be happy and Mm -hmm. is really touched when they think of her in return Mm -hmm. and so like i there are character the characters in this the people involved in it for the most part 
I really want to succeed. I really want them to succeed and be happy. And I, w- I want to enjoy that with them through watching the film. Um, it's not going to be my favorite movie because it's, it's just, I mean, you know, it's funny how you and I have a tendency to, we'll both really enjoy the same movie, but I tend to enjoy some a little more than you and you tend to enjoy some a little more than me. So this is funny. It's really funny to me. It's like the the opposite of what usually happens where I get really excited and enthusiastic and you're kind of like, no, no, it was good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Was was, yeah. was good. I liked yes, it. This is, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're right. This is a little bit of a turnaround. It is. So, so it's funny and, and it's not to detract from your enthusiasm at all. It's just kind of one of those, I, I liked it. Um, but, you know, we mentioned briefly The Prisoner of Zenda, one of my favorite all-time stories, you know, and it's just because it's adventure and romance and it's all the, it's got all the parts that I want. This is a little bit more, I don't want to say drama, but it is a little bit more drama and it's a little bit more kind of soulful and mm-hmm. and for that reason, it's very enjoyable. Um, it's I think it's a great Christmas movie. So <laughs> yeah. So now that I've talked it to death. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go any further, I, I will admit that, you know, as, and then, like I said, because the story does become just kind of a typical story that we've seen before mm-hmm. and everything, that there are moments of that story where I'm just like, mm, I wish it, that part of the story didn't oh, end yes. the way I, it did. I know did. exactly what you're talking about, yeah. Um I, I, that's disappointing. So I do find that there are maybe faults, but the things I enjoy about the film, I enjoy so much that they 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 overshadow those faults for me. So I do recognize that there are problems, or there are you know that <laughs> if you really looked at it bumps. critically, I mean like super critically, <laughs> yes, okay, I could you know if I sat down and actually tried to like write. Uh, like a like a review to go in the paper right. or whatever, or or if I had to do something for class, I would have to admit and write about certain things. But in the end, it's kind of like. But there are these moments, certainly in the first half of this film, mm-hmm. that just outweigh all of that. And it's just kind of like I'm going to give you that because you, I had so much fun with you, you know. <laughs> so I think the first time that I watched it, um, I, I was kind of disappointed the first time. You know, when we when I got to the ending and I was like, oh, I would have liked, you know, an extra scene or whatever. But then the second time I watched it, I actually was more interested in the characters of Chadwick, Melton, and O'Brien. And so I kind of picked up on a few things that I hadn't picked up the first time I watched it. And I think that actually made it more satisfying to me. So just the, that second viewing, I think, probably made me like it more than I would have if I just watched it one time with the idea that this was supposed to be, you know, almost a romantic comedy, which it's not. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but, but that, you know, that was really what it was, was the first time I watched it, I had kind of that expectation a little bit from seeing your post and, you know, getting that text. And then the second time I watched it, I was kind of almost watching it for, with a more critical eye more critical eye but um but that allowed me to pick up some things that i think made me appreciate some of the characters even more so to me harry carey's character in this is probably the best one oh Um, interesting Hmm. but but again it's 
The one with the most depth, maybe. <laughs> with this, it's subtle. He's got the most subtlety, I think. Yes, okay. And so I think if you watch it two or maybe three or four or five times, the more you watch his character and the more closely you watch him, the more you get an idea that there's maybe more to the story than seems it seems on the surface. All right. Well, very interesting. I guess we should probably put some oathfuls on this thing. Yeah. Um, the first time I watched it, I, I, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going in and giving this a solid five. Because <laughs> I just, I, I absolutely loved it. But having discussed it a little bit, and I, I think it would be, <laughs> well, no, I think it would be a little disingenuous for me to give it a solid five when I just sat here a few minutes ago and said that I recognize that there are problems there are some issues with the with the story there are some elements that i wish they had done a little differently or just left out entirely but i'm still four and a half is the lowest i can go (laughs) well i I think it's fair to i think you can make an argument for five othels because five othels doesn't necessarily mean that it's a completely flawless film because there's no such thing right but you know i think we we have a tendency to say if i were gonna recommend it to somebody you know uh (laughs) what i would i say eh don't bother or would i say you absolutely should see this and i mean you sort of already gave it five othels because you already (laughs) did post and text and that's true good point you really i all right, then, I, then I'm just going to stick with it. I'm, I'm giving it a five. I, I truly I enjoyed you this. To do that. <laughs> and I think that there aren't a lot of the major flaws that we see in films that we rate really lowly. You know, there's not bad writing in it. Um, I think that everything that's decided is very, you know, intentional. I don't think there's there's certainly not bad cinematography. I wanted to mention. Um, the one that's posted on our YouTube channel is is a fair quality, and I hate mm-hmm. to drive people away from that, but there is a version on YouTube. The uh, person that uploaded it is called The Film Detective, and the quality of that version is excellent. Oh, good. Um, it's in a little bit wider format, so things aren't quite stretched or compressed the same way. Right. So um, the, watching that version, the quality of the film is very good. The quality of the audio is very good. Yeah, there's also a really good version on Amazon Prime. Ah, okay. There. So. I, the second time I watched it, I, I the first one I watched, I watched from the one we have on the YouTube, mm-hmm. and the second time I watched it, uh, I watched it from Amazon Prime. Prime. And yeah, okay. it's also a very good quality. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think, I, I think that you know, seeing the high quality ones, you can. There's nothing to tra- that detracts from it. So I don't think there's a, a technical or a writing or an acting issue with it. There's there, the only reason that I wouldn't give it five stars is just personal preference of the storytelling and for me or of the story I suppose itself and to me it's not like I was happy with it mm-hmm. but I didn't I didn't walk out of it feeling like oh man that was just such a good movie <laughs> so to me I'm like there there just are I think there are enough things I could nitpick that I can't give it a five um, and I, I think it's better than a fair movie so I wouldn't give it a three so I think four is fair there really are some some effects that for the year that it was made I think are very exceptional um, and, you know, as we already discussed, there's nothing wrong with the writing. The characters are, you know, very natural and all of that. So I have to give it a four 
out of good conscience, even right. though it's not the story I would necessarily pick. <laughs> I think if I, if, you know, out of respect to our listeners, I'm going to give it a four. All right. Fair enough. No, I, 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 that is still a phenomenal rating. And it's probably, you know, <laughs> it's definitely one of, I'm going to say it's probably one of the better films that we've rated recently. Oh, I agree. So, and, and, and it, <laughs> it's a lot better than a few that we've rated in the past. <laughs> yeah. um, no, no. So no, actors. I think four is still a fantastic. I, I absolutely would agree with you, and and I don't, uh, I don't, I can't take issue with any of your, you know, your comments or your points. <laughs> um, but it is, it does actually, I think, work out to be a really good Christmas movie, even mm. though only the first thirty minutes or so take place on Christmas Eve mm-hmm. and Christmas Day, but I think the entire film does make itself to be a, a good Christmas tale. Yeah. Um, it may be... I mean, my favorite Christmas carol is the Alastair Sim Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. That's kind of like a yearly, I have to watch that. Uh, this may come in as a close second for me as far as, like, favorite Christmas movies or something like that. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's It's right up there. But I'm no, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled that you liked it enough to give it a four. Really, uh, I'm glad you, you you saw a lot of the same stuff I did. Um, yeah, there's just um, yeah, I, there's nothing else to say. I guess that we haven't already said. Yeah, I I, I think we vocaled it. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> Assuming that I do get this edited in time, and I'm sure I, I think I'm I am going to. Uh, this will be our December episode, so. Uh, I think it should be out right around the Christmas season. Hurrah. So if so you Merry celebrate Christmas, Christmas Merry holidays. Christmas. I believe Hanukkah <laughs> comes in a little late this year. So you're, you're by the time this comes out, we're either in the middle of it or just about to start it. Um, whatever holiday it is you celebrate, I hope you have a fantastic one. Enjoy the time with your family or... <laughs> Or enjoy the time away Avoiding from your family. Avoiding your family. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Whichever the case may be. Uh, and, of course, everybody have a fantastic and happy new year because we will not talk to you until 2020. Woo-hoo. Um, so that's going to be a, an exciting new year for Earthen Entertainment, I'm sure. Uh, just to remind everybody again that we are looking for scripts for a five-minute mystery that Lydia and I will produce and perform for you. And uh, I guess that's it. Uh, Lydia, so, you know, Merry Christmas and Happy yes, New Year Merry to you, Christmas too. Merry Christmas to you, too, and Happy New Year. It's going to be a good one. I it's hope so. got to be a good one. <laughs> it's got to be. <laughs> it's due. <laughs> this year wasn't a bad year, but I'm looking forward to a good one. Well, 2020, it'll be an even. It's an even year. It's like I know. double even. So there you go. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you guys have a fun and safe holiday. And we will talk to you in 2020. So bye. Bye. Oh, man, I meant to say confusion to our critics and to us, Merry Christmas. (laughs) What she says in the movie. I forgot. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>